folks, I don't know whether you realize this or not, but our culture's going sideways. And with the coming election in a few weeks, I think it's very evident that the Christian church is rather weak in being able to give a reason for the hope that it has with gentleness and respect. On this week's Let's Get Real podcast with Rob Lundberg, I want to talk about apologetics as a means of discipleship and give you some ideas as far as how you might be able to do that. So join us on the Let's Get Real podcast with Rob Lundberg, and let's talk about and get real about apologetics as discipleship in our current age. And welcome to the Let's Get Real podcast with Rob Lundberg. Thank you for tuning in this week and a little bit adjusting the our opening music a little bit and just how we do in the introduction. So we're just being creative, as you probably might have guessed. You know, last week I talked to you about how apologetics could not be ignored. And I, I want to bring this more toward a biblical center because I want to let you know that apologetics is biblical. And I know that's, well, hey, Rob, somebody said apologetics is not in the Bible. Well, folks, it's all over the Bible, really. Uh, all we have to do is just look. And what I want to do is deal with this from the perspective of apologetics being biblical as it is, and I'll hopefully demonstrate a little bit of this in our show today, that you can go all the way back from the book of Genesis all the way to the end of the Bible, and you can see apologetics, and you can see the discipleship factor in apologetics. So let me say this, that when bringing up the subject or the discipline of apologetics, you know, some of us might have heard, you know, well, what are you apologizing for? You know, some folks who have heard that word, meaning giving an explanation for why you and I believe what we believe, will joke about the word apologetics. Others will ask that question from a serious perspective, because they go on thinking that we're apologizing for something like saying, I'm sorry, I believe what I believe. But that's not the case. What I want to do today is I want to deal with the subject of apologetics as discipleship and give you some ideas for understanding it a little bit better. Because what we really need to do is we really need to understand apologetics and know that it is biblical. And hopefully some of these things that I share with you will will give you a, a good start. Now, you know, the for the whole idea that of this came from a blog post not too long ago, like maybe a couple of years ago anyway, and the fact that many Christians today have an ignorance. I don't know if it's a willful ignorance or just a ignorance altogether of what apologetics is really all about. So, you know, I, I really could not agree more with my colleagues who are experiencing the same thing that we are experiencing with regards to this in their respective churches. So what I want to do is just start off with a tip. And and that tip is this. Whenever you open up the Word of God, we need to read the Bible apologetically. Apologetically? What? What do you mean, read the Bible apologetically? Well, let me explain. I was involved in a conversation with somebody on Facebook not too long ago. And they said, well, you know, the Trinity is not in the Bible. The word Trinity, it definitely is not in the Bible. But though it's not in the Bible, the concept of the teaching of the biblical doctrine of the Trinity 
is actually in the Bible and in several places. Even, I will even assume all the way the very first verse of the Bible where it talks about God, Elohim, in the third person singular verb creating the heaven and the earth. Now, you can go through all, all through it, you know, and you can go through Genesis 1 where God says that let us create man in our image and our likeness. You know, that whole thing there is the fact he's not talking about angels, not talking to the angels. I believe he's possibly talking about the three persons of the Trinity that are present. And of course, the image of God is a totally different concept altogether. But we really need to understand that even though the word Trinity is not in the Bible, the, the concept of the Trinity is in the Bible, and also, even though apologetics, the, the word apologetics is not in the Bible, it is presented in the Bible in several different contexts. So what does it mean? Simply stated, it means in one context, giving a reason defense for why someone believes what they believe. Why are you, why are you a Christian? Other religions have their, have their apologists. New Agers have their apologists. Muslims definitely have their apologists. Atheists have their apologists. You know, so what they, they're, what they're doing is they're explaining why they believe uh, Allah is the one true God, or there is no God, or there's more than one way to heaven. You know, as, as a Christian apologist, we believe, and when we talk about Christian apologetics, we believe that Christian apologetics points to the fact that Christianity is true. Now, when we look at the word apologetics, it can be broken down into two parts. The first one is the word logia, which means word or response. With the prefix apo, it means also to give an answer back or to give a response. And so in the literal sense, it's a, it's, a, it's a legal term that talks about to give an answer back to somebody who asks a question or makes an inquiry. Now, although all through the Bible, we do see writers under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit giving an answer for God's existence and the desire to intervene in the lives of sinful humanity. Apologetics is not only the forgotten discipline, but it is also biblical. Now, when I say that apologetics is biblical, the most popular verse that you and I probably have heard, and you probably heard me mention this in previous shows, is the fact of 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. That says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, make it, being always ready to make a defense or give an apologia to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you with gentleness and respect or gentleness or reverence. Now, there are other old, other New Testament passages. Let me say that again. There are other New Testament passages where we see the giving of a reason for why we believe are, are found. It's like in Acts 25, 16, Acts 19, 33, Acts 22, verse 1, 1 Corinthians 9, 3, Philippians 1, 7, and verse 16, and also 2 Timothy 4, 16. I'm sure there are other passages as well. But we also might hear somebody say, you know, well, Jesus never really engaged in apologetics. And all I have to do is say, really, I said, you know, you will really have to read your Bible to see that he never did that if we really understand and I know that that statement is really made out of the fact that people don't know. And I get it. I get it, the fact that people really don't understand. But let me give you some examples 
where Jesus actually did apologetics. If you and I go to the Gospels, we see that Jesus did engage in giving responses to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Think with me for a moment when Jesus was actually confronted with loaded questions. So what do I mean by a loaded question? A loaded question is somewhere something like along the lines of having a complex question thrown at you where it contains a controversial or an unjustified assumption. A traditional example of, of, of a question like this would be somewhere something along the lines of, um, well, have you stopped beating your wife? And of course, you know the, and the results of that would be, well, if you, if you answer that question, yes, it means that you did beat your wife and you've stopped, or you say no, you haven't, you mean to continue. And if you say, I don't know, you're going and saying that you still beat your wife, but you don't know whether or not you've stopped beating your wife. You get the gist. So Jesus was actually confronted with a loaded question with regards to Rome, Rome's occupation, and the teaching of the law. And being the Pharisees were anti-supernatural, I mean, the Pharisees were supernaturalists, and the Sadducees were the anti-supernaturalists, if you will, the teachers of the law. I think of the one passage in particular, Matthew 22, verse 15 and following. Now, if you look at that passage, where Jesus is asked the question about whether or not it's right to pay taxes. Think of it, if you will, for a moment. There are two dilemmas that Jesus was presented with. First was the debate whether or not it was right to pay taxes. Now, you have to know what the taxes were and where the taxes were going to in order to really get the context of this passage. If Jesus said yes, then he would be against the Jews because the tax was a poll tax toward Rome, and since Rome was persecuting the Jews, Jesus would be against the Jews if he said it was right to pay taxes. If Jesus said no, the Romans would have him and would have killed him immediately. But the, but the fact that Jesus was wiser than both the Jews and the Romans, what Jesus actually did do in order to get the assumption on the table, he asked a question. Whose image is on the coin? And they said Caesar's. Then he says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Now, that was an example of Jesus giving an answer back on a very difficult issue. The issue was the fact that, who's, who's, are we supposed to pay taxes? And then the other was, you know, if he says yes, no, um, and of course you know that. Now, the second question that Jesus, where we see Jesus doing this, is in fact on the resurrection. The resurrection, of course, the Sadducees did not believe in the bodily resurrection. They didn't believe in an afterlife, and the Pharisees did believe in that. They believed in a, in a life to come. Now, the second question actually came from the Sadducees who did not believe in the resurrection. And it was just interesting that, you know, people from people who denied the resurrection and they gave something along the lines of a response. Now, here's the, here's the scenario. Let me paint the picture for you. The, the, the subject is talking about this guy who's married to a woman and he's got a few brothers. And one, the brother dies, and the second brother is supposed to fulfill his fulfill his duty in the law to marry the the, the deceased brother's wife. And of course, they give a chain of events where each of the brother dies. Now, 
jokingly here, I would think that if one brother, two brother, three brothers, the you know the fourth brother dies, that we might need to go and question the woman, because why is it that all of the brothers dies and she's left? You know, just a little side note there. But Jesus responds to them. He tells the Sadducees that you are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures, nor the power of God. For the resurrection, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, where God spoke to, you know, the Jews, and he said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, I could go further on this, but all I, I could say to you is this. Jesus did do apologetics. But if you also look in the Old Testament, we see some practical examples where we see God and Moses going and being the deliverer of Israel. We see the fact that Moses, being the mouthpiece of God, talking about the plagues, where each of the plagues that God put down on Egypt were an attack on the false deities of Egypt. We also see Moses with Aaron before Pharaoh with the serpent. We see Moses, Elijah, versus the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel, where who, which God is the strongest, you know, you know, either a Yahweh or Baal. You can go to the words of Isaiah and others. So these are just some examples. But let me give you some other examples because I believe we have time to do this. I want to be practical because what we have seen so far is the fact that apologetics is both in the Old Testament and New Testament. And I believe that it is something that every believer should be involved in and be able to do. But how can that be done? Well, a good place to start is by studying and not just reading the Bible. The Christian must study the Bible in order to discover and begin to teach those truths to others. When you and I are teaching those truths that we have found in Scripture, we are giving our apologia or our reasonable answer concerning why we believe in Jesus Christ. And of course, there are some folks who are misinformed, thinking that apologetics does not work in our culture, and that what we need to do is just share the word. You know, those are the folks that are like, just give me Jesus and the Bible and that's it. But what I want to do now is just start off with the fact, I've talked to you about what apologetics is, I've talked about why apologetics says last week, but let me just remind us that Scripture commands us to go and give a reasoned defense. Reason demands us to have a reason for the hope that we have, and culture is crying out for it. But when we deal with apologetics, you know, we could see all over the Gospels, for example, apologetics can use testimony. You know, I, I know that the inner testimony of a person we know that the Holy Spirit is actively involved in the person. I get the inner, inner part of the inner testimony of the believer. But apologetics also use testimonies. Like in John chapter 5, we have the witnesses. We have uh, John the Baptist, the five witnesses in verse 33 through 35, 36, 37, 39, 47, uh, all the way to 4, verse 47. 
testimony in John chapter 5 of Jesus' own works in verse 36, witnesses of the Father in verse 37, the Old Testament scriptures of the Old Testament and following, and Moses in 46 and 47. We also see, talking about in John verse 3, talking about the sinless life. Now, I believe that a person who is redeemed by Jesus Christ does not become sinless, but we're talking about the sinless Son of God, who where Jesus was sinless. We also see an apologetic in the Gospels where Jesus turned water into wine in John chapter 2. He fed the 5,000 in with 5,000 with fishes and loaves in Matthew 14. He recovered the sight of a blind man in Mark chapter 10. He raised Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. Jesus, in John chapter 4, healed the nobleman's son from a distance. Healing an invalid of 38 years in John chapter 5, he walked on water defying the laws of gravity and, and solid versus liquid in Matthew 14. He also carried it out in his action where it was prophesied in Isaiah 25 and fulfilled being victorious over death in 1 Corinthians 15 and Revelation 21. We see his passion and the resurrection in Luke 24. Jesus told Lazarus' sisters, uh, Mary and Martha, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even though he dies. We also see it in Jesus' parables, parables of the sower in Matthew 13, Mark 4, and Luke 8. We see the director of the harvest in Matthew 13. We see God as the rock, meaning, if metaphorically speaking, in Matthew chapter 7, that Jesus is the good shepherd in 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 John chapter 10, and he's referenced as a shepherd in Luke chapter 15. God is the bridegroom in Matthew 25 with the wise and foolish virgins. God is the father in Luke 15. God is the forgiver of sins in Matthew 18. And then God is the vineyard owner in Matthew 20, and God is the king in Matthew 18. We see Jesus exposing the reason. Of course, we talked about the contradictions and logic of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. You know, for example, Jesus also contradicted the uh, fallacies in logic with regards to a man with a withered hand healed on the Sabbath in Matthew chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 38, he says, whoever is not with me is against me. And Matthew 22, verse 15 that was the 15 to 22 was the render to Caesar what is Caesar, render to God, render to God what is God. We see the apologetic use of prophecy in the Bible where frequent use of prophecies about Jesus from the Old Testament are frequent predictions also about himself in the New Testament. When we talk about apologetics also with regards to the I am statements of John's gospel, in John chapter 6 verse 35 we see that Jesus says I am the bread of life in John chapter 8 verse 12 I am the light of the world in John chapter 10 verses 7 and 9 I am the gate for the sheep and on and on and on so when we see all of these passages we can see that apologetics is very biblical and pastor if you don't think 
that apologetics is necessary. Let me tell you, the greatest apologetics book is the Bible. And, and why is that? Well, we know the Bible is true by faith, according to Hebrews chapter 11 and 1. We know that the Bible is true because we believe. Uh, we know the Bible is true because the Scriptures says it's true, where it says that the bad... Um, that the scriptures cannot be broken. We see that in 2 Timothy verse 3, verse 16. And I, I get it that this is very bad circular reasoning. And petitio principi, if you really want to uh, get technical here, if you're a skeptic. Uh, but, you know, these are just barely adequate reasons for a believer. And these are totally inadequate reasons for a non-believer, and I do have believers and non-believers listening to our show, so I'm focusing more so on the believer today. But let me share with you two better than adequate reasons. Adequate reasons, like, for example, internal evidence. When we talk about internal evidence, we talk about the textual consistency of Scripture, and we talk about the uniqueness of that. And if you go back to some of our past shows, one under the Real Issue Apologetics Ministry, I believe they're still there, the Real Issue Podcast, you'd be able to see that. But I'll do some uh, I'll do some shows on that a little bit later. We also have external evidence with regards to predictive prophecy and also archaeologically. Let's go back to um, internal evidence for just a moment. When we talk about internal evidence and textual consistency, we have 40 different authors, authors, different positions in society, different times, different places, a 1,500-year span of time, three different languages, Aramaic, Hebrew, and Greek. We have three different continents, Asia, Europe, and Africa. We have also Moses, who was in the wilderness, a political leader trained in Egypt. We have David, who was in the palace. He was a king. He was a king's poet. He was a musician. He was a warrior. We have Jeremiah in a dungeon, but he was also a prophet. We have Daniel on a hillside in a palace. He was also a prime minister under Babylon, in Babylon. We have Paul, who was a rabbi, a Jewish scholar, and uh, he was also several times in prison. We also see Luke while traveling. He was a physician and a historian. And by the way, Ramsey, the skeptic, uh, James Ramsey said that Luke was a historian of first rate. We have the Apostle John exiled on Patmos. He was also in Ephesus. We have Amos, who was a herdsman. We have Joshua, who was a military general. We have Nehemiah, who was a cupbearer to a pagan king. We have Solomon, who was a king and a philosopher. And Peter, who was a fisherman. Matthew, a text collector, was seen by the Jews as a scoundrel. And Mark was Peter's secretary. The internal evidence shows uniqueness. In a short time between event and oldest manuscript, we have over within 100 years or so. While you have Homer with the, from the oldest to the oldest manuscript to the from the event is like 500 years, Plato's works 1,200 years. We have verifiable consistency from copy to copy. We have a harmony on many subjects. Subjects like marriage, divorce, remarriage, homosexuality, adultery, obedience, character development, submitting to authority, lying, parenting, the nature of and revelation of God. It's a single unfolding story where we see the tree of life closed in Genesis and open forever in the revelation. But when we deal with the external evidence, we have predictive prophecy. 
We have Babylonian rule of Judah for 70 years, found in Jeremiah 25, verse 11 and 12. We have the destruction of Nineveh in the book of Nahum. We have Tyre attacked by many nations in the coming of the Messiah. We have the prophecies about Jesus, over 400 uh, prophecies about Jesus. We have archaeology. We were found where there has been found the House of David inscription, Hezekiah's tunnel, Dead Sea Scrolls, Sennacherib's palace relief, conquest in Lachish, the Moabite stone, which you can see in a museum, how Moab was oppressed by Omri, king of Israel, and his son Ahab, and the Galilean boat, a crucified young man, and the Cyrus Cylinder. You know, we talk about the, the greatest apologetics chapter in the Bible, and that's Acts 17. It was during Paul's second missionary journey, Thessalonica. He traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia to reach Thessalonica, where he used the scriptures to reason with people. What was the result? Some of the Jews who listened were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with many God-fearing Greek men and quite a few prominent women. Also, his second stop was Berea, and there were people. These were people that were more open-minded, and they listened to Paul eagerly, and they searched the scriptures to see if what Paul and Silas, uh, basically, to see if they were telling the truth. What was the result? As a result, many Jews believed, as did many prominent Greek men and women. So, what we have here, folks, uh, we could go through uh, Paul's. Journeys. We could talk about his trip to Athens. We could talk about the Stoic philosophies and the Epicurean philosophies. We could talk about Paul's Areopagus message. I'm going to save that for a later time. What I'm sharing with you, though, folks, is the fact that we have an embarrassment of riches, to use Dan Wallace, to talk about the fact that you can use the Bible to disciple and show why Christianity is true to your church. There's no excuse with the culture going the way that it is going. And this might sound like a rebuke, and if you take it that way, amen. But folks, November 3rd is coming. November 3rd is coming, and the church needs to ratchet it up. And we are going to be tested. We are going to be tried. Our faith is going to be tried with the, with the changing of administration, should that happen. If the changing does not happen, it's still going to be a very interesting time because of all the people that are going to be upset with the result of the election. I'm not making a prophecy. All I'm saying, folks, is we need to be discipling our people. I've given you some examples today. I've given, hopefully going to be able to share with you more next week with regards to Paul's apologetic. And we'll talk about that next week, Lord willing. So please take these words and, and, and share them with others because we need to be discipling our people in giving a reason why Christianity is true, why the Bible is true, and we need to reinvite the mind back into worship in our daily basis. Folks, life is worship. And when we talk about life being worship, it is about, it is about presenting our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, 
which is a spiritual service of worship, not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of our mind that we might be able to prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. You've been listening to the Let's Get Real podcast with Rob Lundberg. Thank you for tuning in this week, and thank you for listening and indulging what I've been sharing with you, the fact that we need to be about discipling our people, and apologetics needs to be that new discipleship. Folks, we need to read the Bible apologetically. We need to understand apologetics is a biblical term. And as we go to the Bible and we can look and see some of the apologetic fervor that's in the Bible, we can understand the fact that it was written by 40 different writers, three different continents, three different languages in the span of 1,500 years. We can talk about the agrarian aspects of it. We can talk about how Jesus engaged his skeptics and his critics. And we have a great model because Jesus was the greatest apologist ever. So until next week, this is Rob Lundberg from the Let's Get Real podcast. And we'll be back with you next week, Lord willing. As you go out, as you go out, make sure you're studied up. Make sure you put on the armor of God, which when you do that, you're putting on Christ. Read Ephesians 6 and then read uh, Romans uh, 13, 14, I believe. As you go out, put on the armor of God that you might be able to stand against the evil day. And when you do, go out and give them heaven. And we'll be back with you next week. Lord bless. Thank you.